So uh, welcome to everyone. The way to really get this started is you make the sign of the cross. Everybody will start. Well, they'll stop. So welcome, everybody, to Pine with the Priest. If you're new here, um, thanks for coming. My name is Father Brian Larkin. I'm the pastor of a lot of kind of these people. Um, just down over here at Our Lady of Lords. If you haven't been to Our Lady of Lords, we really encourage you to come check it out. Uh, you're always welcome. Come see me. We do this every so often. There's no rhyme or reason to the timing, but I really want to welcome any of you who haven't been before. Thanks for coming out tonight. We hope you'll invite your friends. Really casual. Tonight's a night where uh, I'm going to talk for maybe 10, 15 minutes, and then we just open it up for questions about anything and everything, which is really dangerous. Um, but anyway, that's what we do. That's how I roll. So, um, so tonight, what we're going to talk about, I, I think sometimes when I think about these nights, I think we should do something that's relevant to where we're at during the year, what the church is talking about. Um, and tonight, we're in Easter season, so I thought, you know, natural topic, let's talk about the resurrection. And I want to, tonight I might pull a couple lines from N.T. Wright. Does anybody know who N.T. Wright is? Anybody? Okay. Ducky, thank you. John O'Brien. Okay. The rest of you suck. Um, N.T. Wright is not Catholic. He's a Anglican bishop, and he's broadly considered to be the top scripture scholar in the world. Um, and he's someone I like to read a lot. I don't agree with everything he says, but when he becomes Catholic, I will. So Wright wrote a book on the resurrection. He actually, this is the pop version. It's called Surprised by Hope. He wrote a 750-page scholarly version of this. Um, this isn't the one I want. I'll come back to that one. Wright begins his book, and he says, he says the key, basically all the way from ancient Greece, if you go back to Socrates and you trace Western civilization, and if you kind of stopped at every major thinker, and you ask the best minds of Western civilization, and actually not just Western, but all over the world, and you said, how do you kind of like, if you want to think about life seriously, you don't just want to kind of go where the wind blows, but you want to say, what is life about? How should I live my life? He says, almost every major thinker in the history of the world says that if you want to live life seriously, the first thing you have to wrestle with is what does it mean to die? And what you believe about death is really going to determine the way you're going to live this mortal life, which is something most of us don't do. Uh, but almost every major thinker, you know, Socrates, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, of course the great Christian saints, they all kind of say this, that if you think about your death, you'll actually know how you're supposed to live. And so tonight I kind of want to do two things. I wanted to get you thinking about that a little bit. You're like, okay, I'm never going to pine with a priest again. Like, it's summertime. I just want to have my beer. Uh, but it's, it's a great thing. It gets you thinking. And the second thing is I want to actually make just a high-level pitch for why you should believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Good? Okay, sweet. You're just like my congregation. You don't talk back. That's good. <laughs> that is good. That is good. So um, where did I do that book? There it is. So 
There's a lot of language today about life after death. And the first thing I just want to get you thinking about is that resurrection is not the same thing as life after death. They can overlap, but they're not the same thing. So when Princess Diana died, there was this famous kind of like note that went out through the media. And it wasn't from her, but it was someone who kind of spoke as if she were Diana. And it said this. It said, I did not leave you at all. I am still with you. I am in the sun and in the wind. I am even in the rain. I did not die. I am with you all. And I think that's kind of common to our our culture. I can't tell you as a priest, and if you've done this, I'm not judging you, but if you go to a funeral today and you hear eulogies, it's really fascinating. You should all just, like, start coming to funerals at Lourdes. It'd be kind of weird. People would be like, wow, my aunt was so loved. Look at all these young people. Um, But a lot of eulogies out there, they'll say, you know, what really matters is that she lives on in our hearts. And uh, there's other things that happen, like a lot of eulogies, people will say, well, who is my uncle? Well, he really loved the Broncos. And I always think if someone says that, if that's the deepest thing they can say about me when I die, I'm like, I'm going to kill my nephew. Um, But it's really interesting to listen to him. But, but the common kind of prevailing thing about life after death that we hear all the time is, is kind of this, well, they're, either they're in heaven with God, which could be true, or we hear um, they live on in our heart, or maybe the extreme example would be that poem about Diana. You know, I'm, I am in the wind, I'm in the rain. The Catholic Church doesn't necessarily believe any of those things. And what I always think at funerals is I think, I don't want to live in people's memories. I want to live. I mean, it would be great if after I die, people say, wow, Father Brian was a great priest and he impacted my life. That would be wonderful, but I won't really care because I'll just be dead. Right? What I really want is I want life. So that's the first distinction. The second distinction is people say, well, she's in heaven with God. Okay, maybe. We're not really going to talk about that yet tonight. We'll see if it comes up. But here's the the big thing. What made Christians radical? So how many of you have ever heard of the Roman uh, doctor Galen? He was a philosopher and a doctor. Anybody ever heard of Galen? Okay, some of you guys. Same nerds as before. Okay. Um, Galen is very famous. Uh in the ancient Roman world. He's like the most famous doctor. And I, I forgot to look up his dates. If I knock my Bible in the trash, that would be bad. Okay, that's okay. No worries. So Galen says, he, he says they're in the early Christianity, and he was not a Christian. And he, he talks about Christians, though. And he says there were two crazy things about Christians that made them different from every other people on the planet. And he says the first one was they showed remarkable sexual restraint. That's not our topic tonight. Maybe that's next time with the priest. But he was amazed by that. He was like, Christians show remarkable sexual restraint. The second thing he said was, they believe in the resurrection. And he and and other Romans thought that was shocking. And here's why. What marks our belief about the afterlife as different from other people is that 
other people might believe in the afterlife. They might believe in your soul ascending to heaven. Plato believed in that. But Christians, what's different between the afterlife and resurrection is your body. And Christians believe that your body will be raised to a new physical life. A lot of Christians, the way they speak today, they might know that somewhere in the back of their head, but the way they speak, they don't necessarily talk about resurrection. They talk about life after death, but not resurrection. And resurrection distinguishes Christians from pagans in a lot of ways. So why? Plato thought that the body was evil. And a lot of people did. And isn't it easy to think that? Right? It seems like our body is like, if you're trying to live a moral life, it's like your body can be a difficult thing, right? Um, or Bishop Morlino, is this, he's the Bishop of Madison. He was a friend when I was a focused missionary. And he's a really big guy, and he used to preach about glorified abs, right? He was like, and he, that's why he wanted it. He actually did want a resurrected body. So pagans in the ancient world, they believed in life after death, but they did not believe in resurrection because the body got diseases. It was weak. Um, it gets out of shape. It causes problems. And so ancient thinkers, they thought, well, maybe the soul will live on. But the body goes in the grave and it decays. Okay, so we're going to come back to that. Why does that matter in a minute? But real quick, between that final kind of thing and now, we're going to talk about why, why should we have any reason to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? And here's why. For 2,000 years people have been trying to disprove the resurrection. And, and that will not cease. Does anybody remember a couple years ago, they um, found an ossuary box and they claimed it was Jesus' bones? Does anybody remember that? That's good. You shouldn't because it was, it was totally false and debunked very quickly. Um, but every couple years, people try to disprove the resurrection. And no one's ever been able to do it. They've tried so hard. And here's the big problem. And N.T. Wright, this is why he wrote a 750-page scholarly volume on this, was to just demonstrate this, was that the big problem, if you're someone who says the resurrection didn't happen, here's the problem a historian has. And I think I might have told this story before to some of you. When I was a senior in college, I took a class at CU Boulder, and it's called The Rise and Fall of Ancient Rome. And the first day of class, my professor got up and he said, I'm not a Christian, but we have to talk about Christianity in this class. We just have to. And he said, there is nothing in the history of the world like the rise of Christianity. He's like, there's never been an, a historical fact like the rise of Christianity. And here's the thing. Lots of people in first century Israel claimed to be the Messiah, first and second century. Um, in the second century AD, there was a very famous Jew named Bar Kokhba, which means son of the star. You know the star of David? That comes from Numbers chapter 24, and it's a prophecy about a king. And that star is a symbol of the Messiah. And so Bar Kokhba is a Hebrew name that means son of the star. 
And Bar Kokhba claimed to be the Messiah. And he led this huge rebellion against Rome, and it was crushed, and he died. And nothing ever came from it. And we have a lot of historical examples like that, of people who claim to be the Jewish Messiah, the king. But nothing ever came of them. And, and what happens is in, in ancient Judaism, the Messiah was never supposed to die. The prophecies of Christ's death in the Old Testament aren't about a Messiah necessarily, like Isaiah 53, but that takes us off course. No one was expecting that when the Messiah came, he would die. In fact, if a Messiah died, you would know that he wasn't the Messiah. You'd be like, we bet on the wrong horse, just like the two disciples in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. So here's the point. If you deny the resurrection, it's almost impossible to explain the rise of early Christianity. In fact, I would submit it is impossible. Saul, right, St. Paul as we know him, we know him from other sources aside from the Bible. And he was one of the most educated Jews in his time. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel, who is a very famous rabbi. He's mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, he persecutes Christianity, but then he spends the rest of his life traveling the known world, trying to convince people that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And it, there's so many points about this, but I want to make one just simple one. G.K. Chesterton, if you haven't read G.K. Chesterton, you haven't lived. Um, but G.K. Chesterton talks about this phenomenon called chronological snobbery. It's a great term, chronological snobbery. And what he means by that is he means we think we're better than people who live before us just because we live later in time. Right? Like, oh, people who live before us, they were just ignorant and backwards and they didn't know what they were talking about. And Chesterton says, that's so stupid. You get to build on things, true. But here's my point. Sometimes people in the modern world, they'll say, maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you're like, I don't know. How am I supposed to know if Jesus rose from the dead? It does take some faith. But there's unbelievably good reasons to intellectually see this makes a lot of sense. Ancient people did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in it. Some Jews, not all Jews, some Jews believed that in the distant future, God would have a general resurrection where all the world would be judged. They did not believe that, you know, you'd, you'd bury grandma one week, but you kept the dinner table, like you kept a spot for her because she might pop up in a week or two, right? They didn't believe that. No one did. They knew that when someone died, they don't come back. They might believe in life after death. They did not believe in resurrection. And the simple fact is this, and this is one of the big reasons why Christianity has lived and survived every attack for 2,000 years. It keeps coming back. Is because you can't explain the explosive growth of Christianity without it. Historians have tried and tried and tried and tried. The 12 apostles, we know mostly about... Um, and Paul isn't really one of the 12. We know most about Peter and Paul. 
we don't know as much historically about some of the other ones, except what we know in the Gospels. But we do know this. We do know that, and it doesn't prove it, but we do know that 12 men, if you count Paul in place of Judas, gave their lives because, not because they thought this was a true idea, but because they said, I've seen a man walking around. He died, and then I saw him eat a piece of fish in front of me. There's nothing like that in the history of the world. And that's one of the reasons Christianity converted the known world. Christianity should have died out of the gate, but it exploded. Okay, there's much more to it, but that's one of the reasons we believe in the resurrection. Okay, why does it matter? And here's where we'll close it tonight, and then we'll open up for questions about anything. Here's why this matters. We live in an age that's, like, super confused about the body. And you have two extremes. One extreme is kind of hedonism. By the way, I have temptations to both. I don't know if you guys do. Hedonism kind of says, like, the flesh is the best thing ever. It's all there is. Eat, drink, and be merry at Platt Park, and that's it. <laughs> and I have temptations that I'm like, some of you were at Mass on Sunday. You heard me talk about raspberry cheesecake gelato. But then on the other extreme, you actually have, and a lot of Christians are this way, is they say, well, the body's just kind of evil, and what I want to do is I just want to go to heaven and leave my body behind. And the resurrection denies both. Because the resurrection says this, it says God created the world good. And that's what the resurrection is about, is that God doesn't abandon his creation. What the resurrection teaches us in Romans chapter 8, by the way, is all about this, is that what we believe about God is that the world is a very, very, very good place that has some very, very, very serious problems. I tell my RCIA class, you guys I'm sure all remember this, that we believe a little bit about our lives and about the world, that it's like a car that when the alignment's off, right, if if your alignment in your car is off, you might be mad and you might say, wow, this is a terrible car. But really, it's not a bad car. It's just something's wrong. The car itself is good. There's just something off. And that's what we think about the world, is that God created the world profoundly good. Right? If you spend time with people, you ever notice this? When you first meet someone, you're like, if you're like me, this is so bad. I'm like a melancholic, and I'm not very social. And when I first meet people, I'm like, I don't like them. (laughs) Like, like, whatever. Look at how that person dresses. But the more you spend time with people, don't you always discover they're good? Always people are good. God created people good. But something's wrong. And resurrection, what it's about is that this is so beautiful. God doesn't allow sin and death to have the final word. And so resurrection doesn't say, wow, bodies are bad. The earth is bad. Physical things are bad. Resurrection says God created the world good. In Genesis 1, right? God looked at all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And so God's on mission. That's what the resurrection is about, is that God doesn't just leave that to its own ends. He looked at the creation and he says, I created a good. Sin has caused problems but I am going to redeem it from the inside out. 
And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing as Catholics. Because what it does for us does, and we'll close with this, it does a couple things. One thing it does is that it fills you with hope. Right? Wherever your life's at, and if this is real, I tell people on Easter every year, if this really happened, if Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, and all those men and women gave their lives for that, that's all that matters. Right? The fact that you lost your job last week or your marriage is on the rocks or whatever problems you might have, the fact that that's going on in your life doesn't matter if you have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Tremendous hope. Worth living for. Worth saying, I don't, I don't have to have everything my way. Right? This is why I can be celibate. Right? Like I always joke about this, but it's actually really true. It's like the best thing on earth is marriage. It's the best thing on earth. But it's the best thing on earth. And priests are celibate because they're a sign of heaven. That there's something even better. And it's worth waiting for. Okay, so that's one thing it does. The second thing it does is it doesn't let you check out. And this is the point that a lot of Christians, I think, get wrong. Is they say, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to heaven no matter what happens. And so this world can go to H-E double hockey sticks. The resurrection denies that because God says, no, my, my world is good. And you Christians who believe in me, I'm actually at work in you to make this world what it was always supposed to be. And that's our job. That's it. When, when the Holy Spirit breaks in your life, when you become someone who loves Jesus, right? Like there's a little mini resurrection inside of you and you become a person that's part of the solution. You're a person who says, I'm going to work with God to make things the way they should be. I know I can't do that totally, right? The way, how are we doing that here? Well, we're meeting in bars, and hopefully some people over there are like, oh my gosh, is that a priest? Wow, is he hot. Um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I have to say that every time just for fun. It's a cheap laugh. But <laughs> how do we do this? In a small way, right? Hopefully in this part of Denver, we have a group of people who love each other, who forgive each other, who care about what's going on in the world, right? And they're slowly making themselves into the men and women they're supposed to be. So there's good reasons to believe in the resurrection, good historical reasons. It still takes faith, but it makes your life different. And if you believe in the resurrection, brothers and sisters, right, you are part of God's solution to the evils in this world. Okay, good. Okay, so the way it goes now is we're going to have Q&A. It can be about anything and everything. John O'Brien is going to uh, take a mic around. So if you have a question, he'll give you a microphone so that you can speak into it. Um, and, and right before we start that, just one last thing. I just, again, I want to thank anybody who's new tonight. Thank you for coming. We've got uh, a young adult. It's not just young adults. It's just anybody. We have a candlelight mass coming up a week from tomorrow at the church, so uh, you're all invited to that. Please come to that. Oh, it's kind of my bag. Who has a question? So as Catholics, we believe in the resurrection, um, and that's why we don't believe in scattering ashes, correct? Why is organ donation okay? Good question. 
So the, if you all heard that right, why can we not scatter ashes as Catholics, but we can donate organs? And here's the reason why. The church believes in a symbolic universe that our actions have meaning. And so organ donation, like what do we, when you give an organ to someone, what the church is saying is you actually believe in life, right? Like you want, you want to help someone who has some kind of disease or problem with one of their organs, you want to help them to live. Um, people don't always mean this when they scatter ashes, but when you scatter ashes, the meaning itself is symbolic. And traditionally in the history of the world, scattering of ashes has been a sign of denial of the resurrection. So think about this. How, have, you, have you read the Iliad? You have to read the Iliad. It's awesome. It's violent, masculine, really broken. Um, but if you know anything about ancient pagan culture, what do, what do they do in pagan cultures when, a, when someone dies? They burn them on a funeral pyre. Why? Because you don't need this body. And some people might be Christians. They might think, well, maybe the, there's a resurrection, but the meaning itself, let me give you one example of how um, things can mean things even if you don't intend it, right? When I was in like fourth grade, don't you love little kid stories? They're the best. When I was in, like, fourth grade, my teacher was, like, such a two-faced, like, jerk. And she, she, she had this day in class. She goes, who wants to take a note to the principal? And every kid in class raised their hand. And she's like, Brian, why don't you take a note to the principal? And what I didn't know was I was carrying a note to the principal that said, Brian has been flipping people off in class. <laughs> right? And what I didn't know, literally when I took that note, I actually didn't know what that meant. I, and I was doing it, but I, didn't, I just had seen it somewhere, and I didn't know what it meant. But that gesture, and our culture, we've given that gesture of meaning. So, so that's kind of the purpose, is that the church now allows people to be cremated because it's recognizing that when people are doing cremations, they're not necessarily denying the resurrection, but we're not allowed to scatter them because it really tends to say, you don't need your body. It's not important. And Christians believe in resurrection. So, is that good? I just have a random question. So, my, so you you said something earlier about Judas, and I just remember you brought that up that Paul took the place of Judas at the twelfth disciple. Made my wine mind wander because that's kind of the way my mind works. So, like, what's the Catholic stance on Judas? Is he bad? Do we? I mean, I know, he, I, I I know how it ended, but sure. Like, like, yeah. Like, so, are we like, damn it, Judas? Like. Well, hopefully, uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question. So one, one clarification is that Paul actually doesn't take Judas's spot. I know I did say that, but just self-correction, Matthias takes the space of Judas in Acts chapter 1. Um, oh, were you? Yeah, it's Matthias in Acts chapter 1. But, um, but you no, know, Catholics think about Judas... The Catholic Church, and I love being Catholic again, like, the Church has never definitively said anyone is in hell. It does say hell exists. But you know how, like, when we canonize a saint, we're saying, you know, we have enough assurance we can say this person is in heaven with God. But there's no opposite side of the coin for damnation. Right? So the Church has never come out with a ceremony and said, okay, Hitler is in hell. 
which makes me feel so good about myself. <laughs> I'm like, yes, there's hope. Um, so with Judas, though, the one thing, so there's a, there's a tension. The church doesn't definitively claim that we know that anyone's in hell. What, but the New Testament is very strong. And Jesus, Jesus at one point says about Judas, he says, uh, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. That's a strong statement from our Savior. So, so anyway, so, so the point is, the church doesn't come out and say, this person is in hell, but Jesus is pretty darn strong about it. So we, we don't hate Judas. We actually aren't even called to hate the devil. We're called to hate lies and sin and untruth. So that's what I would say. All right, Father, thanks for taking my question. My question is about the divine... Sounds like a radio show. <laughs> thanks for taking my question. Okay, Father. So we just had the Divine Mercy Sunday a couple weeks ago, and everything that I know about it is that... Um, when Jesus spoke with St. Faustina, you know, he, he told her obviously a lot of things, but one thing he said is if somebody goes to confession and receives the Eucharist after Easter Sunday that they're completely forgiven and withheld from all punishments. So how, I've never quite made the connection between that and then if I know the church teaches that if you commit a mortal sin and you die that you're damned to hell. So obviously if somebody's forgiven from everything and they're spared from eternal punishment. How does that coincide with the sacrament of reconciliation? Okay, great question. By the way, I just want a disclaimer here. Anything I said, I'm on my second beer, okay? Um, <laughs> there's no recording, right? Alex, is that true? <laughs> um, wonderful question. So I think there's two distinctions we have to make first. The first distinction, and, and I want to say I believe in it, in divine mercy, of course, as a concept in general. And I also believe in the revelations of Jesus to St. Faustina. I absolutely 100% believe in that. Um, but I think it's important to always say when we talk about a private revelation, when, when God appears to a saint, it's really important to say, as a Catholic, you don't have to believe in those. The church can vouch for them and say, we think this is trustworthy, which is similar to like Fatima or Our Lady of Guadalupe. But what we actually believe as Catholics is that everything you need to know to be a good Catholic was revealed by the death of the last apostle, right? And so the church has authority, so she can speak, and she's trustworthy. But the church says, you know, we think these things are trustworthy, but you do not have to believe in private revelation, right? The whole purpose of Jesus coming to earth in some ways was that it was public, right? Christ is the word. The great text on this is, Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, in, many time, in, in ancient times, in various ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Christ is the final word. So that's one distinction. Um, the second distinction, I think, is that mortal sin by its nature, the natural conclusion of mortal sin is damnation. So real quick, we're on delicate waters here. What are the conditions for mortal sin, RCIA? Okay. Okay. Okay, good. So, so for a mortal sin, we have to be clear about what words we're using here. A mortal sin means it's something serious. 
It means you had full knowledge. You knew it was wrong. And it means you had full freedom. And that's not part of the question, but I just want to make sure that's clear, right? Like, we're not talking about, I did something bad, but it was, I was really, I don't know, I was in an addiction or someone held a gun to my head or I didn't know it was wrong. So here's what I would say with that. Mortal sin, the natural um, consequence of mortal sin is damnation. We are bound by that, but God is not. And so it's similar to like what the church teaches about a baptism of desire. If someone says to me, Father Brian, how do you want to go to, how should I go to, you know, what should I do to go to heaven? I'm going to say, be baptized, believe in Jesus Christ and live a good life, right? Can I guarantee that someone who doesn't do that is going to go to hell? No, because Jesus gave us those venues or that vehicle for eternal life, but God is above all law. And so the mercy of God, so with with Divine Mercy Sunday, I think what we're saying is that even though God's mercy and justice are united, that God in his mercy, mercy triumphs over justice, and that he has deigned that even in the case of mortal sin, there are places where he will be merciful and he will bring us all to heaven. Thank you. Okay. Okay, This is going to be a hard question, I can tell. (laughs) Hopefully it won't be too hard. But it is two-parted. So the first part, we talked of, you talked about um, the importance of the resurrection and kind of like our bodies and the importance of that. Uh, Luke 23, when Jesus is on the cross, he says to the, to the thief next to him, today you will be with, with me in paradise. So like, was he talking about that day or, and what does that mean? And then secondly, that kind of leads you to think, okay, maybe like when you die, you go to heaven. But kind of what you were saying is, like, um, there's a physical resurrection, so we don't necessarily go to heaven right away. What are the implications for that while we're living? Okay, you're going to have to remind me on part two, actually. So okay. Let's tackle part one first. So Luke 23. So the good thief. Uh, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Um, amen, amen, I say to you that this day you will be with me in paradise. Um, so this is not the Catholic Church, this is me, but it's rooted in Catholic history and theology in the early church. So what Catholicism believes in many ways is in, have you heard of typology? So typology means that something in the Old Testament foreshadows something in the New Testament. St. Paul mentions that word in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, but anyway, an easy example for those of you who haven't heard of this is if you know the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, uh, Abraham leads his son Isaac up Mount Moriah, and he puts some wood on his back, and they carry it up this mountain, and Abraham is going to sacrifice his son. And the early Christians saw this as a prefigurement that pointed to Christ. Uh, Isaac at this point is actually a grown man, so he must have been willing He goes up a hill, he has wood on his back, and he goes in obedience to his father to die. Sounds a lot like Jesus, right? So there's there's a shadow in the Old Testament, right? Like like if the New Testament's over there, and like the Old Testament's here, it's like Christ is standing right here, and there's a shadow cast backwards that gave us some hints about what was coming, foreshadowing, right? So here's my point. 
the early Christian interpretation of the cross is very, very, very strongly linked to the Garden of Eden. Um, Jesus is the new Adam. If you read Romans chapter 5 or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right, it talks about there's this old man and it's Adam, and there's this new man and it's Christ, right? And in the Garden um, in Eden in Genesis chapter 2, there's two trees with names in them that have names. The tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. In the New Testament, the tree of life is the cross. And so the, the early Christians talk a lot about this, is that Jesus um, is in a garden. And there's a tree. And there's a question of whether or not he'll be obedient. And St. John Chrysostom, for instance, is one person who says this in the fourth century, is that when Adam, when his bride was created, how, was, how did Eve come about? You all know this. No tacky jokes. Right, the rib. I have a really bad joke about that if you want to hear it, but but I'll probably be lynched anyway. So, so point B. Here's I know this is circuitous, but we'll get there. So in in Eden, Adam's asleep and God takes a rib from his side. What the fathers of the church say is they say that Christ is the new Adam, and he sleeps the sleep of death on the cross, and his heart is pierced by the lance, and out of his side comes his bride, which is the church blood and water, which are symbols of the Eucharist and baptism. And we have many, many early church fathers who say that. So here's my point. My reading of that passage, when Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, is that Jesus Christ is the new Adam. And, and his cross turns the world upside down. So his cross is his enthronement, the place where God is king. In John chapter 12, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, all, I will draw all men to myself. That's a kingly image. When is Jesus Christ king? On the cross, he has a crown of thorns. The inscription above his head says, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Uh, he has a, when he goes in his passion, they give him a scepter. They clothe him in purple, the color of kings. And kingship is about obedience. And when the world is drawn to obedience to Christ is because of his suffering love on the cross. So that's one more example. But it, So finally, just to draw us to a close, when Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, ironically, right, the fathers also say that the cross is the marriage bed of the New Testament. Ironically, we would never think of it this way, but where is paradise? It's at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so there's, I don't think the church teaches that definitively, but there's enough Catholic theological reading of that text that says that, that that's my reading. Okay, number two. Part two, that was, what are the implications of us living today in light of, and you kind of talked about it, the whole resurrection thing, but versus the idea of like a, a soul resurrection after we die. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So that's a wonderful question. I don't have all the answers to this, but I do think um, it's all too easy for us as Christians Life after death is real, by the way. I'm not saying that your soul, like, ceases to exist or something. I am not saying that. I'm sure I'll get an email to the contrary anyways. But um, it changes your attitude, right? If God is working to make all things as they should, I think it's in John chapter 8. I'd have to look it up. Jesus talks about how his father is still at work in this world. And he says, I'm at work and so is my father. 
And I think that's primarily what it does, right? Like, if I'm going to just die and go to heaven, it's easier to not care about this world. Pope Francis, right, like, Laudato Si, his encyclical on the environment, it's not the thing I would have chosen to write on. I was quite shocked when the Holy Father wrote on the environment. I was like, how about premarital sex? Like, that seems to be a problem, right? Um, But he didn't choose that one. And part of the thing that the Pope is saying is, this world matters. And I think that's what the resurrection, not just life after death, commits us to, is, brothers and sisters, I mean, so many of you I know in this room, you love God, you love Jesus Christ, you go to church every Sunday. Do you care about the poor? Do you care about just practices? I came from that angle, like my um, conversion to Catholicism came because of, I think this is true, and I believe in Jesus, and that's awesome, and I am always will. But when you do that, you also have to care about his world. You have to care about the people he cares about. You have to care about the world he cares about. And I think that's the main message of bodily resurrection. Hello, Father Brian. Greetings. Is this going to be a hard one, too? Uh, It depends. I don't know. So it branched off of who uh, the person who had the question about organ donation. So as a student who is studying physical therapy and it was taken in anatomy class where people donate their whole bodies to be studied by students who need to learn anatomy, what is the Catholic Church's stance on whole body donation for that reason? Anybody a bioethicist? (laughs) Take it like a call-in. <laughs> this is not my area of expertise. Um, I can give principles. I don't know the definitive teaching, but I can give principles. Um, the main way the church really thinks about our bodies, right, is, is those two things. God created them good. There's problems. Death is the culmination of the problem. And there's future eternal life for those who love God and are obedient to him. So, medical, um, so using cadavers, right, my understanding is the church does not have a problem necessarily with it, but there is a dignity to the body which we would say is inviolable. And so, so we should feel different, right? Like I had friends in college at CU, I remember, like I remember Tracy Ketchum, this wonderful girl, and she was like, oh, my gosh, I have cadaver class today. I was like, I'm going to go puke in my accounting trash basket. Um, that's, I think that's just the key principle is, like, ultimate respect. I think the church allows it because if it's going to advance the intention of God for life, right? God wills life as long as it follows, right, the proper laws that he wrote into creation, um, so it's medical research is okay if it respects the inherent dignity of the body. And honestly, I wish I had a better answer, but I just have to confess, I don't know the real specifics around that issue. So okay, that's all right. you win a, a beer on me because you just like totally stumped me. Way to stump the priest. Good job. Luis. Oh, he's got the microphone. You got to appeal to him. All right, we got to keep this relatively short because I want you guys to have fun and drink beer and not have to listen to me too long. Two more, FB. Okay. Right, right. Now. Got it. Hey, Father. Greetings. Salutations. This, this question is not about the resurrection, but I, I had an argument with a coworker today. Um, I, I read a book called The Young Man, the Gurus, and the Elder Paisios, 
a while back, and it was about the relationship between prayer and the supernatural and yoga and all those things. And I talked to a guy today about ayahuasca. I don't know if you know what that is. It, it, well, this isn't going to help the question then. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a plant in the Amazon that you, you drink, and it gives you a connection to the supernatural world. It's, it's like the drug DMT. It's natural DMT. And, and it, it essentially gives people this, this clairvoyance into the supernatural. And there's all these stories of demons and angels and all this stuff. And I, I didn't really know how to talk about it because, A, obviously it exists. But, B, would there just be a plant that actually gives people visibility into the supernatural? And if so, is it evil or, or is it just something that we should stay away from? Awesome. Great question. So, I have a stock of that in the sacristy, and uh, no, just kidding. Um, the uh, so here's what I would say, and this is where this is where I will um, utilize Hunzer's von Balthasar. Um, Balthasar is an expert in, in Eastern um, spirituality, and one of Balthasar's, I think this is hits the nail on the head, is that he talks about how. There are useful things that you and I can learn about prayer. And one of the things I just want to acknowledge first to start with, it's so good as Catholics. Like, one of the principles of, of the Catholic Church is whenever you find good, just affirm that. And I think one of the things that's good in this is people are looking for the transcendent. Right? Isn't everybody looking for that? All of us, we hit this point in our lives where we're like, I just, this is not enough. I can't be happy with merely physical things. There's got to be more. There's something deeper. And people are searching for that. Balthazar's distinction is that Christianity, because God is a personal God in Christianity, or he's a person, he uses the word for Eastern um, philosophy and religions. He frequently uses the word technique. And for Balthazar, that's a negative term. And what he's getting at is that you can't manipulate God. Right? And so in a certain sense, what I hear behind that question is people want to get there and they say, well, if I just take this drug, I can do that. And by the way, we can do that. We can, try, as Christians even, we can kind of say, God, I'm going to manipulate you. Right? Sometimes people come to me and they'll say, Father Brian, I did all the right things. And the deal was, if I do this, God's going to do this. Here's the thing. God's a person. And you can use things, but you can only love a person. And so is it, the, the thing with technique is that um, is it, it's, it can be a form of manipulation. And so the, that's the problem we have as Catholics. And so prayer, you know, someone in casual language might say, well, prayer, here's a prayer technique. But do you see this distinction? Is like when you learn ways to pray, it's kind of like in a relationship, I might learn that there are ways to talk to my bride that are her language, and, her, and it helps her to understand what I'm saying. That's not manipulative. And so God's a person. That's what I would get with it is that, is that like the way God created us to be in relationship with him was to be in relationship. It's through the heart. It's through obedience. It's through getting to know him. And that's not easy. And some of these things are about control. So 
off the top of my head, Luke, that's what I, is that resonate? Okay. Cool. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm actually giving you a really good opportunity to put to rest uh, an argument I've had with my mother for years. Whenever I go home, we talk about this. So I don't really have a question, but I'm more or less asking you about your stance on the topic. Um, so three people or three humans were born without original sin, right? So why would God give three people that leg up on the rest of us? I mean, is it the original sin that kind of leads us towards that road to natural inclination towards sin? And would most of us, I mean, even even a small percentage of given the opportunity to be born without original sin, would we have a better life? And why are we denied that versus the three people that had a chance? One succeeded, and then the other two led us down that road of crap. Awesome. Anything else? Oh, Ad, he asked me who the three were. Is it Adam and Eve and then Mary for the Immaculate oh, Conception? Well, so. and you might want to throw Jesus in there. Oh, Jesus too. But yeah. I mean, he's, I mean, pretty sure, pretty sure he had a, had a leg up already. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to throw you into the bus. Awesome. This is great tonight. What great questions. Um, so, do you ever just get pissed at Adam and Eve? I totally do. Like, and it's one of those things where I like, it's kind of like what they did to each other where they blame each other. And I'm like, man, I am like a really crappy priest. You suck, Adam. <laughs> so I think a couple of distinctions are helpful. The first thing is that God never intends sin, ever. So the fact that you and I are born with original sin is not intended directly by God. Catholic theology makes a distinction between God's um, positive will and his permissive will. So his positive will means, I want you to do this, and it is my will. His permissive will means, it's like when you guys have kids, and you say, you know what, I don't want my son to get in trouble, but I, I'm going to give him a little bit of freedom, because I, I want him to learn the way the world works. And I'm not willing directly that he does something wrong, but I'm going to allow it because I think there's a greater good. And that's, I think that, that term is the, the key to this question, is the greater good. So how many of you guys went to the Easter Vigil this year? The Easter Vigil is, if you haven't gone, it's so beautiful and so powerful. It's amazing. Um, but there's this line in the Exalted. The Exalted is at the very beginning of that Mass. It's this ancient hymn. And in that hymn, there's a line that says, Oh, happy fault. It's crazy, right? Like, and it's talking about Adam and Eve. It's saying how wonderful that Adam and Eve fell. And the point is that because of the fall, Christ came into the world and redeemed us. And actually, because of that, because of Jesus, you and I get to a far higher state than Adam and Eve ever could have lived in. The, the life of heaven, the life of union with God, is a far greater state than Adam and Eve ever had. Far greater. So here's my, and I'll try to kind of tie this together. So um, it's not that God willed us to have an uphill battle and them to have a downhill. It's that he willed for all of us to live in perfection of love, truth, goodness, and beauty. But God values freedom. And that's the key, right? Like that God doesn't want robots. He wants people who choose to love him. And that's the key. So God doesn't desire that you and I are born with original sin. But 
as Chesterton says, and he's, again, if you haven't read G.K. Chesterton, you haven't lived. Chesterton says that imagine if you had, there are all these bets, but you took away all consequences. Right? If people have, I, I'm not a, like drawn to gambling. I don't know why people like it so much. But if you took away all consequences in gambling, no one would gamble. They'd be like, boring. <laughs> consequences make for an adventure because of human freedom. And God has willed that you and I affect each other. If I, be, if I am not a good priest, it will affect every one of you. And if you don't become the men and women you're supposed to be, it will affect me and everyone else in this room. And so, so I think that's the point is that God doesn't desire the fall. He doesn't desire sin. He doesn't desire an uphill battle. But he does desire freedom. And without freedom, there's no such thing as love. And he uses it then to create a greater good. Is that fair? Bam! To close, to close this out, Father Brian, Scott has a special request. What's he going to say? No, I got it. Uh, so I just wanted to end tonight on a celebratory note. Uh, there's an amazing parishioner at Our Lady Lords, and it's his birthday tonight. Jared Fisher. Can we all sing him happy birthday? Happy birthday to Bang, bang. Hey, final note. Thanks for coming tonight, guys. This is awesome. I love this event. Great questions tonight. Check out our website, Lord's Denver. Come to Mass. Uh, if you ever want to talk to a priest, that's why I'm here. John O'Brien really knows theology. He's on our staff. If you have a question you can't get to me, talk to John. And uh, we'll have our candlelight Mass next Thursday night. And come see us. Thanks, everybody. Have a beer.